0: Well, good morning. morning. We turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And um, what I'd like to continue on is the past few times I've spoken. We've been talking about um, sanctification in the sense of what God has done within us to um, what God has done within us to enable us to live a holy, godly life and to live for him, to live victorious Christian life. We've talked about the old nature in which uh, we inherited from uh, Adam and which was passed down to us, that we have a sinful nature within us, this old man. But when the moment that you get saved, you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior, God does something within you, you're born again, you're born from above and God places a new nature within you, a divine nature that this nature in the sense of uh, divine nature is just the attributes and characteristics of God that uh, enables us to live for him. But he didn't stop there, he has poured out his spirit within us, he's placed the Holy Spirit inside of us to lead us, to guide us, to teach us all things. To bring us into all truth. The Holy Spirit, if you are truly a child of God, lives within you. He convicts you. He guides you. He gives you the understanding of the scriptures. As you you read the word of God, you see, an unbeliever can read the the Bible, and he's going to glean certain things from it, in the sense of whatever the Spirit of God teaches him. They'll grab the historical aspects of it, you can just turn on the Discovery Channel and watch some of these individuals that that want to discuss the Bible and, and how they really don't understand the Bible, but they're trying to be this authoritative figure that's teaching the Bible, but all they have is historical aspects of it. But in order for us to know the mind of Christ, we got to have the Holy Spirit who teaches us and renews our mind. There's two aspects of uh, this victorious Christian life that I'd like to Bring to a closure uh, today is first, we've talked about mostly is your personal walk with the Lord in holiness and not living a life um, being dominated by sin. We're no longer um, slaves to sin, we're no longer under the power of sin in our lives. We're no longer to walk according to the prince of the power of the air, the world. The devil no longer has his sway over us. But there's a further aspect you've got to take, and in which we're going to talk about a little bit more, and that is to live a victorious Christian life. And is what are you doing for the Lord today? Are you accomplishing great things for God? Are you involved in in, in ministries and and, and investing in Christians' lives? Are you involved with preaching the gospel, sharing in testimony to your fellow workers, neighbors, whoever it might be? You know, we were studying uh, 1 Samuel on Wednesday nights, and I'll give a 30-second commercial for it, but you guys come out if you can make it out. It's been great. Um, We come together. We discuss the scriptures, but most importantly, we pray about this assembly. We pray for every single one of you here. And the Christians come together. And then afterwards, we're fellowshipping. It's a wonderful time of uh, discussion. And there's two reasons why you should come out any meetings of the local church. And the first of all is Christians are there. If you love Christians, which we should, you want to gather to them. The second reason is the Lord Jesus Christ said himself that he will be there. So Wednesday nights, he's there where two or three are gathered together in my name. There am I in the midst and the Lord is there and we come to meet with the Lord, not just Sunday morning, but right now he's present with us tonight. He's going to be present with us Wednesday nights. But as we're studying first Samuel, the Lord hit me with this is 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 living this victorious Christian life is one of the things that David did is uh, as he's going on and he's anointed to be the next king, but Saul's still in place. And um, Saul's trying to kill David, and he's running around trying to avoid it. And finally, he gets so discouraged, he goes to the land of the Philistines and aligns himself up there with the king there, Achish. He, he ends up almost uh, going to war with the Philistines against Israel. But the, the lords of the Philistines say, we don't want this guy with us. He, he's the guy that's killed uh, Tens of thousands, there's songs sung about this guy. This, this is a guy that's a victorious in battle. And what better way would he be able to reconcile with King Saul than to come back with the head of the Philistines in to turn in battle? So David goes back. Uh, they say, we don't want you to go to battle with us. They, they send him back uh, home to uh, the city he's living in, in Aphek. When he gets back, his city is burned. The Amalekites came in. They, they, they captured all the women and children. They took all their... Their, uh, their cattle, their, their, their livestock, everything that they had. And all the men are broken hearted. Everyone's just crying out because they've lost their, their uh, families and lost everything. But David does something that is characteristically uh, uh, that David does is he remembers that he's fallen and he needs to be restored to the Lord. And it is a simple verse, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. He would go and confess his sins. He would go and make things right. He would go into the one that can uh, overcome all these circumstances. And then all of a sudden, David's back. I gave the example. It's kind of like you're watching a movie and you have the hero or the main character. And he kind of falls away a little bit. And you're like, where are you going, man? You're you're straying away from all your, your characteristics that's been so strong. And all of a sudden, David gets renewed in the Lord, and he's back. First thing he does is he's going to search out the Lord. Lord, should we pursue these Amalekites? The Lord says, go. Go after them. You're going to get back everything. You're going to get back every wife, every child, everyone that's there. And David goes forth, and he battles these guys. And because of the sake of time, I'm not going to get into it, but he goes, and it says that he recovered all. All that he lost, plus some. He had so much uh, bounty that he went back to the southern tribes of Judah and, and, and some of the, the, the uh, Israelites there, and he shared this with all the people there. But this is a tremendous picture of the Lord working through our lives, and that we are more than conquerors, we are victorious in, the, in our Christian faith. We can go on and do great things. The Lord has said, with the faith of a, if you had just the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move, and it would be moved. The access we have into heaven, the prayer, the resources, all the tools that God has given us, we are not limited in any amount of being able to be successful for the Lord. One preacher has said years ago, he said, uh, We don't need any more commentaries written. We don't need any more systematic theologies. We don't need any more books written on on Christian living or everything else. You see, because our problem in the church is not knowledge. He said, what we need is someone with a passion and a love for the lost. Someone that has a passion and a love for the saints that wants to engage and serve. And just as David went forth and was victorious in his battle, That we go that way, that route in a spiritual realm to go out and serve him and accomplish great things for him. God has opened up the doors from the prayers of individuals to uh, to go about and and, and see nations almost in whole get saved and see the gospel spread in mighty works. And the question I have for myself and as well for you is, do we have that faith that we're looking to God to see great things happen? Are we asking great things of God? Because he's able to do it. I think I've shared this example before. Bill McDonald shares that Alexander the Great would have his uh, citizens come, and they would request things of him. And, and, and many people would come and just say, hey, can you take care of this? Or can you take care of this little thing? And someone came to Alexander the Great, and he, they said, I want this, 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 and laid out this laundry list. And everybody's looking at and going, why, why are you asking this of this, 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 this man? And Alexander the Great said, granted, you have honored me because you have asked big and you know I can deliver it. Do we go to God and ask big? Are we, are, are we so small in our minds? And and to take this for a, a really practical lesson, we have all the, the um, different ministries in effect as far as Boys Brigade, uh TNT, girls' TNT, Awana program. We have the Saturday Night Outreach. We have the Sunday school over there right now. Are we, when we're engaged, are we praying fervently and looking for the Lord not only to work but to do great things? Are we going with the, the anticipation of seeing souls saved? And if there's not souls saved, are we going back to the Lord and go, Lord, why is there no soul saved? Are we going with the anticipation of saying we want to see lives changed? You know, oftentimes we get in the, the, this this cycle of we just go through the motions, and we've been doing these ministries, we've been going through the functions, and even in this meeting, in every meeting of the local church, and even when you gather together on, on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, do you come prepared in prayer, looking for God to use you and to do great things? This is a small portion of the, of, of the church gathering right here. The, the pulpit is a very small portion um, The big portion is the body working together and all of you as you fellowship, as you exhort one another, as you come and serve one another, as you teach one another the scriptures. There's a place for everything, but do you come ready to invest in Christian's life and praying, Lord, give me an opportunity to minister minister to someone. Who's hurting here? Lord, bring him in my path. Who's unsaved that I I go to the workplace or so? Lord, I want that divine appointment. Bring him. Are we accomplishing great things for God? Let's go ahead and read uh, uh, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. Because we're going to see from this portion of Scripture how God has overwhelmed us with everything we need, and he's on our side, and that we should be victorious in all aspects of life. Verse 28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, when he predestined, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall we not with him all, him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen. Who is it who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress our persecution, our famine, our nakedness, our peril, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created things, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hopefully you found tremendous comfort and encouragement in these these scriptures. Our eternal security and how God is gonna bring us from the point of salvation all the way through to glorification. God is able to accomplish all that he says and all that he has set out For us. But look at verse 37, the main focus of our our message this morning that I want you to take home with you. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So we are kept by the power of God, by His love. And we are more than conquerors. And that, that word means decisive victory, overwhelmingly victorious. And as you would see and you'd follow through the the Old Testament of where um, from Joshua and the judges and and, and from David and the Lord says, you have the victory. They had the victory, hands down. They were victorious, decisively, even when the odds were so greatly against them, even when the enemy had chariots and had these mighty armies. When the hand of God is for you, nobody can stand against you. See, God wants us to go out and be victorious. He wants us to go out and to make disciples and to see people get saved and to see people's lives change and to see people conform to the image of his Christ. He wants to see people glorify him and live for him and turn to him. And he wants to use us to accomplish that and to do that. We are co-laborers with Christ. Philippians 1.6 says this, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God has begun this work in you, and he is working within you to see you conform to the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.14 and 15 says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Does this love of God, does this love of Christ compel you, motivate you, stimulate you? When we look at the cross of Calvary, how heaven gave his, their very best, its very best, and that was the Son of God, to come down and die on the cross for our sins? Do you represent fallen humanity? to take our wrath, our penalty. See, we were separated from a holy, righteous God. We were enemies of God. We had no hope. We had no future. We had nothing but the, 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 the future of a lost eternity that is separated from a holy, righteous God. We're facing the wrath of God in the flames of hell. But because of God's tremendous love for us, Because he wanted to save us. See, salvation originated with God. It didn't originate with man. He loved us first. And then we respond with love. But does this ultimate sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for you and I motivate us to live for him? See, Paul would explain it and turn over to Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. He he would explain that once we get the concept of this, this ultimate sacrifice that Christ did for us on the cross your reasonable logical response should be one of giving yourself giving your all and living for him look at uh Romans 12 chapter uh chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 familiar verses but powerful says I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We are to be living sacrifices. And you know the problem with living sacrifices, one preacher said, is they like to climb off the altar. Do we stay on that altar do we sacrifice? Do we sacrifice when it hurts? Do we sacrifice only when we, we, it's comfortable? Do we give only of the abundance of our blessings? Do we give only of the, of the lowest shares? Or does God get the very best of what we have? Are we pouring out ourselves in our entirety to the service and giving God everything that we have? You know, the, the, the natural man is a strong individual. You see the natural man, and we see it in, in the, the hurricanes, and, and, and we saw it in uh, Houston and in Florida, how, how the man can work and he can go do tremendous things and, and serving other men and, and, and helping and rescuing and doing all this stuff and providing the basic needs. Well, this is the natural man doing it. How much more do we have the strength of the Lord and the Holy Spirit and the power to go above and beyond our natural ca- uh, capacity? Do we push when it hurts? Because God will give the grace. He will give the strength. I'm not saying we we go to the element to where we fall dead on our faces, but um, we have our families, we have our workplace, we have everything else, and there's a a balance within it. But the thing I'm trying to point out here is that when I go to do, say, Sunday school, am I giving them 110%? When I preach this message, did I give the Lord 110%? Did I search out, did I pray, did I, did I bask in the word of God, or do I give them half-hearted, my second best? You know, we were at the baseball game last night, and um, uh, it, was, it was a good time of fellowship. The Riverside Youth Group, the Snipe, invited our youth group over to go to the Angel Baseball game with them, so a lot of us went, and um, as you sit there and you watch this game, you see people that'll just go crazy, Stand up and cheer for the angels. The angels can't even get into the playoffs. It's 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 a pointless game. Um, They're playing for pride, I guess, or for the fans. But you still in the eighth inning. uh, The the angels are winning four to one, and then then you come to the. I think it was the seventh, seventh or Uh, eighth. The Seattle Mariners came back, and the guy hit a home run, two home runs back to back. They go up six to four. But now the eighth inning, the rally monkey comes out. The kids love it. They're going crazy. Everybody's cheering and. And they want him to come back, and the Angels step up, and now they end up with uh, bases loaded, two outs. I don't remember the guy's first name, but one of the the best baseball players in in Trout, Trout, yeah. Trout's up to bat. I mean, this is stuff. These are moments that they dream about being a baseball player. Bases loaded, they're down, uh, two outs, and the crowd is just going crazy. Everybody's standing and cheering. They want that victory. They want it so bad. They're engaged in this game. Unfortunately, trout popped out. That's it. That's the end of the game. But with us, what do we cheer about? What, what, what drives us? What passion comes out of us? What are we living for? You could even say, what is our legacy that's going to be left behind? Are we going to be one that is a lukewarm Christian? Are we going to be one that uh, gave half-heartedly to the body of Christ? Are we gonna be ones that he gave it all? Did he sacrifice it all? He lived for Christ. because Paul says, which is your reasonable service. This is your logical service, is to live for Christ. In light of all that he's done for us on the cross, in light of this, this, this salvation that we have received by grace, this demands my heart, my life, my all, everything. And this is a conviction of myself. This, this is not a message for, necessarily for all of you. It's for myself. Am I given of myself wholeheartedly to the body of Christ for evangelism? When was the last time I preached the gospel to someone? When was the last time I looked for a divine appointment? When was the last time I sought to see someone get saved? We have one life to live here. And we've got to make it count for, for the Lord. We've got to make it count for Christ. Paul says, this is your reasonable service. And he goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable uh, will and perfect will of God. And what we've talked about is not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And that uh, we're going to look at this morning eventually of being conformed to the image of Christ. But one last thing on this victorious Christian life I want to bring to your attention is a study that you can bring on your own. It's the overcomer and how we have overcome everything. I I originally mentioned that the the three enemies of the the, the Christian is sin, the flesh, that old nature is the world and Satan. Listen to these verses of the overcomer. John chapter 16, verse 33, at the very last thing, the Lord instructed his his people, uh, his disciples there in the upper room. He says, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world." You see, our overcoming, our victory, everything that we have has nothing to do with my natural ability to do it, but it's because Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Because Jesus Christ, there on the cross, he crucified that old man. He delivered us from the power of sin. He delivered us from that slavery, that bondage that we were in where sin had its grasp on us. He liberated us and set us free. 1 John 2:14 says, "I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one." Here John is instructing them they have overcome the wicked one. They have overcome Satan. In all his, his uh, plans to deceive and temptation and destroy you, they have overcome that wicked one. First John 4, 4 says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He has placed his spirit within us. God himself lives within us. First John 5, 4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. In Revelation 3, says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down on my father on his throne. We will reign, the overcomers will reign with Christ in the coming millennial kingdom and sitting on his throne. What a tremendous blessing we have. But what God wants to do, and there, there's an aspect of being conformed to the image of Christ that he will accomplish at, this, at the return of uh, Christ for the church, at the rapture, and which we will fully be conformed to the image of Christ. We will fully shed off the sin that we have. Our our bodies will be made perfect. We will be like him, it says, the scriptures teaches. But before then, right now, what God is doing in a work of sanctification is he wants to change us. He wants to see his son in us right now. That every dealings we go about in this world, every dealings in conversation with fellow Christians, with unbelievers, with whatever we go and do, he wants us to represent Christ. He wants us to act just as Christ would act. Not just Sunday mornings, not just Sunday evenings, not just when we gather together with the Christians, but in the workplace, to your neighbors, to wherever you gather, to the soccer field. And I I go with my son to the soccer game. Wherever you go, we take Christ with us, and we represent him. And what God wants to look down, if you might say, sometimes we, we, we look at uh, kids, little babies and so forth, and go, that, that looks like a mini-me of uh, the father. I can, I can see him just in, in you, you know. But God wants to see mini-mes of his son. He wants to see us that, that we so resemble Christ in everything we do that this brings glory and honor to him. This is his purpose. This is his divine will. This is what God wants it, it, it is his glory. And we can look into Ephesians chapter one and his purpose and everything he set for is to bring glory and praise to him. All the angels, all the, the spiritual realms are watching you wherever you go, whatever we do. A child of God. See, Satan is the accuser of the brother and this is Satan's job. He, he wants to see you falter. He wants to see you fail. And he's up there night and day accusing us of this, of that. And see, it's a shame when you come into the church and you see people doing the work of Satan and accusing the brother and accusing one another, ripping each other down. God builds up. He doesn't rip apart. But Satan rips apart and destroys. And if Satan has his way, he will destroy each and every of us. That's his goal. Let's look at verse 28. This is God's eternal and unfailing purpose through the gospel. And we know what all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now to narrow down the purpose in verse 28, and a lot of times we like to apply this to all different uh, situations of life and everything that, that comes about, and we know that God does work good out of them. He does take Effects that uh, on the unbelievers to try to gain him to himself, but the, the the primary purpose of this verse and the focus um, is towards believers, people that have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal savior. Look, it says this: for we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, and to those who are called according to His purpose. It's those that are accomplishing the will of God. It's those that are being ultimately. And what his goal is, is to talk about, is being conformed to the image of Christ. God is working out everything, no matter what seems to be tragedy, no matter what seems to come upon you in life. Car accident. You know, last night, it wasn't Ricky's fault, but as he's leaving the baseball game, unfortunately, someone wanted to violate the vehicle code and do a U-turn in a business district and hit Ricky's car. The airbags went off. Caleb was in the car with them. And um, um, I don't know, it hurts to lose your car, huh? That's your precious car. But, um, but they, they were both okay. Ricky and Caleb were okay. You know, it's amazing how I was thinking about how the Lord worked. I had a full uh, Sequoia with me of kids and, and, and people in the car. So I had eight seats. And on the way out, Ryan goes, uh, We got Tommy. We'll, we'll take him home. Okay. Um, I go with the flow. Well, it so happens that all of a sudden that frees up a seat. Ricky gets in his car accident. He needs an extra seat because Caleb's with him. i got to take him home. He needs to get his car towed. And the Lord worked it out. But the, the thing is, is, even in this accident in which he experienced, God is going to work out the good of it. And there's a purpose and there's a plan behind it. We don't always know it. We don't always understand. We don't always um, comprehend it. And we're going to get to eternity. And you're going to get the aha effect when you, you figure out that the Lord allowed you to go through certain things to conform you more to the image of Christ, to change you. You know, it, it, we talked about a little bit. And David, as, he was, uh, as the Lord took away the kingdom from Saul and said, you're no longer going to be the king. And I'm passing it on to somebody else. And, and Samuel went and anointed David. Well, why didn't David right then and there just rise up to be the king? Why did God allow David to flee for his life and to go through all these miserable experiences of playing the harp to have a spear chucked at your head to hiding out in the caves and, and so forth? But the Lord preserved him because God had to teach David lessons. See, God's more interested in your character than he is in, in overwhelming blessing you with just uh, material possessions. He wants you to be changed from the inside out, and that's what he's pursuing, and that's what he's working after, and he's using the affairs of life and the natural effects to bring this out in us, to accomplish in us his goal of conforming us to the image of Christ. So Ricky, there's a reason why. Just can't tell you why, but but the Lord will, will use that And whatever you're going through, whatever circumstances, Rick has his surgery. I thought it was awesome. We prayed for it. The Lord allows stuff to happen for a purpose. The ultimate purpose is his glory. And that's what we should seek, to glorify him. And that even though we think we're alone, even though we think nobody is watching us or or what's going on, sometimes it's to bring us to a closer relationship with him. Sometimes it's to separate us out and to... So, you're too busy. I need to spend a little alone time with you. So, I'm going to rupture that ACL. You accept it. And we go on and we spend the time with the Lord, for He has a purpose in it, in everything He does. I I made the joke about my my knee. I said, No, the Lord's using that to teach, aiming the kids servanthood. You know, I think that's. No. But the Lord has a purpose behind it, and he's working it according to his purpose. And I want you to look at verses 29 uh, and uh, 30. A- and here's an eternal chain of events in which God is doing. This is God's side of salvation. This is God's accomplishment. A- and don't fall into the, uh, the ploy of some. And, and, and there's been many people that have wrestled over this and trying to support their Calvinistic argument or, 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 or downplayed it to play their Arminian point of view, and one man said, I was reading, I thought it was a good analogy, he said, Calvinism is a house with no door. Arminianism is a door with no house. But see, right here, and what he's talking about, because he doesn't mention unbelievers, because he doesn't mention certain things, does not mean that it's not true and that it's not uh, accurate to say. So it doesn't mean that God uh, doesn't want all men to be saved. It doesn't mean that, that the gospel has no effect on the unbelievers doesn't mean any of this stuff. It is showing what God is doing in the eternal councils and what he's playing out within the affairs of man to accomplish his task and his will. And this is God's side of it. You know, sometimes when you, you, you preach, you, uh, um, it might be on a subject, say you're emphasizing grace and love. And you get done and, and you're just blasting on grace and love. And then someone comes up to you and go, oh, well, you think you can live any way you want? You don't take righteousness seriously? Like, no, I was emphasizing grace and love. I wasn't dealing with that, but yes, I do. And if that's the case, then you're teaching grace and love properly because in Romans chapter six, that's the same accusation they brought against the apostle Paul. They can just continue in sin and live however they want because that brings glory to God. And he says, God forbid. So this is what Paul's going to write here. And he's showing the side of God, that God is for us, that salvation is of God, that he initiated with God and he is accomplishing it and he will carry it out to its fullest. Salvation is not of me. It didn't originate with me. It didn't originate with you. It wasn't that I was lost in my sins, and I sought out God and said, God, save me. I want to I have a right relationship with you. Reconcile me back to you. Now, the scriptures clearly teach that there's none righteous, no, not one. None seek after him. See, God, because of that love, that attribute that he has, so loved us that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. He wanted to save us. He wants to accomplish this. He's this plan of salvation originating and came from God. He sent his son into this world to take on flesh and blood. The son of God humbled himself and came down and took on flesh and blood. God wants to save us. And there's an aspect that God is working in our lives. And a lot of times we, we, we don't think about it, but God is working behind the scenes of everything to bring us not only to Him, but He continues to work to conform us into the image of Christ and what He's going to say here. So look at what it says For whom He foreknew. And look at the, the, the aspect of this foreknowledge is on whom. It's people that he's interested in, not just events, not just his omniscience of knowing all things, but it's whom he foreknew and advanced. And he set his love upon, that he loves and wants to save. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, Lord Jesus Christ was the first one that was foreknown. Now, some of the Calvinists try to take this word and and mean foreordained because they they can't stand this word. They they, they go crazy over it. They try to redefine it and look into trying to make it uh, look at the word knowledge and the intimacy. And there is an intimacy aspect of the foreknowledge. It's not just knowing all circumstances, everything else, but God is intimately involved in our circumstances and bringing us along. See, before you were ever saved, God was working to bring that gospel into your life. He was bring, working to bring that chain of events into your life before you were ever here. He knew what would happen if Ricky was to turn right or if Ricky went straight. What would happen? God knows. And he actively works within it to accomplish his will and his purpose. And again, don't, don't take this to mean that, that uh, because this is specific and Paul is talking to the believers that this all of a sudden carries this weight that God's not willing that, any should, uh, that anyone else should uh, be saved and that all of a sudden we end up with this doctrine that, see, look, God selected certain people to be saved and he didn't select these people in an election. That's not the truth of the scriptures. You've got to take the entirety and rightly divide the word of God and we don't put weight on one section of scriptures and not on the others. The same Bible we have, Romans chapter 9, which is a tremendous verse of showing the sovereignty of God next chapter is chapter 10, and the human responsibility to respond. But Paul is very specific, talking to the believers here and what God has done for them. and Now he's working out the salvation. That whom he foreknew, these he predetermined to be conformed to the image of Christ, the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, what he wants is Christ to be the firstborn, to be the preeminent one. This has nothing to do with first of birth, but of order, but of preeminence, of first place. That we all resemble Christ. We all resemble God's Son and bring glory and honor to him. But whom he predestined, these he also called. He's called us to himself. Whom he called, these he also justified. He's declared them righteous. He's acquitted them from all charges of sin. He's removed them from the wrath, the penalty of sin. He has declared These ones justified are righteous. A declaration. He hasn't made them righteous. He's declared them righteous. There will be a time in the future that you will be made righteous and the sin will be taken out of us. But right now, he has uh, declared us righteous. And these he justified, look at, he'll carry you all the way through. These he also glorified. He's going to take you from the beginning to the end. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will continue to chasten, to work in us, to conform us to the image of Christ, to allow situations, events, tragedies, blessings, everything to work within you to bring you closer to God and closer to the image of Christ. And if God is for us, in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God's the one that justifies. God's the one that sent his son. God is the one that salvation originated. You got a contention? You can take it up with God. Because he has, within his attributes and character, rightly fulfilled every attribute of him to rightly justify us in his sight and to rightly bring us before his presence, rightly reconcile us. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Sword? Look at our condition in verse 36. For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Persecution, all these things, tribulation, should only make us stronger in Christ, only drive us closer towards him, to live for him. And Paul would close with this, verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created things shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are in the love of God. It's wrapped around us, and nobody can separate us from that. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's close in prayer. Gracious God, Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he has overcome all things. He has overcome the world. He has overcome sin and death. He has overcome the evil one. And Father, we are in Christ, and through his victory, we have victories, Father, we are overcomers. Father, help us live victorious Christian lives, not only in holiness, but in service and accomplishing your will and your purpose. And may you receive all the glory. Conform us to the image of Christ, we do pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.